Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of the Saturdays of the Byzantines podcast. My name is Professor Wren. I am your host. Thank you for joining us here today on a Sunday as opposed to our usual Saturday. Uh, I was competing in a uh, powerlifting meet yesterday, which was Saturday, and by the end of it, uh, you know, we show, we show up around 9 o'clock in the morning, get done around 4.30 in the evening, and uh, <laughs> you just have no energy to do a lecture uh, when you come home, so uh, I do appreciate your patience and my uh, pushing this back a day. If you have found us here on YouTube, please make sure to give the video a like, subscribe to the channel if you're new, and hit the notification bell so you never never miss another episode. We are also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, so if you listen on those platforms, please make sure to follow us there, and especially on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. Now today, we are going to begin a bit of... Um, I'm segmenting the the next the, the coming centuries here of Byzantine history into kind of three distinct parts. Uh, I was watching a lecture recently by a guy named Paul Friedman, who is a medieval historian at Yale. Uh, he has a good uh, Yale has a YouTube page called Open Courses or Open Course, uh, where you can watch uh, lectures from classes, uh, full classes of Yale professors, and so I've watched. Uh, John Merriman's um, uh, like modern world history lecture, and then uh, Paul Friedman also has an early uh, medieval history class up on there. And so I watched his lecture on Byzantine history. That's more focused on Western medieval history, but he has a lecture on there on Byzantine history. So I watched it the other day, and he splits up the coming century. So it was kind of uh, lucky for me, I guess, that I found it him talking about the same time periods that we are, and the way he broke it down, I, I, I kind of liked, so I, I just sort of went with it. Also have another friend with us here tonight. It's a cigar. This is a Perez Carrillo uh, La Historia. Hopefully I don't have to relight it during the middle of the podcast. Uh, but so the next three, so right, I'm going to split off the next, uh, uh, I'm starting a little later than where he was now. Uh, he starts, uh, the first period he kind of refers to as contraction, which is from uh, 565, basically the end of the reign of Justinian, up to uh, 717. That's, that's the period of the contraction of the Byzantine Empire. So obviously we're really in the middle of that. We just covered uh, the Islamic expansion, and uh, there's going to be, uh, Byzantines are just losing more territory for quite a while here. And then uh, from 717 until 843, we have a period of reconstruction. We're also going to be talking about the iconoclasts in that episode. We're going to be reading some John Damascus there. John uh, St. John Damascus is a, is a saint who addresses the iconoclast issue. And then as well, we have, we'll have from 843 until 1071, which is a period of expansion, uh, the Byzantines kind of, uh, once they've kind of, the, 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 the dust has settled, they're, they're on their feet again, and they can push back out and try to expand back into some territory which they lost centuries before. And so today's lecture is obviously going to focus on uh, contraction, 
because that's the first in in the series of three. And uh, this is going to be a longer one, so uh, <laughs> get buckled in. It's going to get it's going to get pretty wild uh, towards the end of this. So starting off, uh, we we last we left our hero Heraclius, the the tragic hero Heraclius, uh, has now died. So this is around. Uh, uh, around 640 or thereabout. And he is uh, followed by one of his sons, uh, Constance II. But Constance II doesn't get to the imperial throne right away. So when Heraclius died, uh, the crown actually passed to his son, Constantine III, uh, who was his son by his first wife. Uh, Constantine II, I believe, was from his second wife, Martina. Uh, and Constantine III had tuberculosis. Now, he was about, I think he was in his late 20s at this point in time. And because he had tuberculosis, everyone basically assumed that he wouldn't live very long, and so you would very quickly need to find uh, someone to follow Constantine III. All right, no, I'm sorry. Constance II, Constance is the son of Constantine III. My apologies. Uh, I, I remember this. I should have <laughs> glanced over this before I started. Uh, but so, so one would assume. So, with Constance being the son of Constantine, one would expect that Constance would follow his father after his death. However, Constantine ruled jointly with his half brother. Remembering this now, uh, Heraclonus, who was the son of uh, Heraclius by his second wife Martina. Confuse the names there. Um. And so, and so there's a bit of a dispute uh, who would reign either Herac- Heraclonus or Constans uh, because it should pass to Constans, but there's this odd situation where Constantine and Heraclonus uh, are ruling jointly. Uh, there was quickly a revolt against Heraclonus and uh, in favor of, in favor of Constans, and so Constans ascends the throne, although he's only 14 years old. Now, Constance does have a pretty uh, a roller coaster of, of reign, but he does pretty well. I think he's he's a fairly underrated uh, Byzantine Empire. Not 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 in the sense that like I think uh, Alexios Alexios Komnenos is a is a highly underrated Byzantine Empire emperor. Um, but Constance does a good job, especially considering all the uh, all the crap he has to deal with. Uh, at first, Constans sends uh, a force to try to retake Egypt, but that failed. Uh, not unlike the crusade in Egypt of uh, King St. Louis IX, centuries later, basically the way both of these works, both of these situations worked, is that uh, you would have an army come in to the very northernmost part of Egypt, the Nile Delta. They would take a, a town... Uh, and, and then basically just get stuck there. They wouldn't be able to uh, expand out of there because uh, lines of supply and uh, you know, marshy terrain in the Nile Delta. Uh, it's very similar situations if you've ever read anything about uh, the Crusade of Louis IX. Under the watch of uh, Constans II, Armenia is also going to switch back and forth between Byzantine and Arab control several times. Uh, much of Greece is going to be lost to the Slavs at this point. Uh, you're really only going to see uh, uh, Thessalonica and a couple of other cities still under Byzantine control here. 
a lot of Italy is going to be lost to the Lombards, and it, and it kind of already was, but uh, this is the situation he's inheriting. And as well, Byzantine Africa and Italy are shifting in a more autonomous direction. Basically, right, we talked about in the last episode how they had uh, been turned into exarchates, which is where uh, you have both a civil and military governor in one person. So the, the you know, one person in the exarchate controls both the civil governing and the military governance. And this is done to give them more autonomy, but at the same time, that autonomy allows them to drift more in, in an independent direction, almost operating as not part of the Byzantine Empire. But yet, despite all of these troubles, you know, Constance is still going to be standing uh, for a while here, and the empire is still going to be around by the end of his reign. And it's... Uh, uh, in, in Treadgold's text, he says that, you know, and we'll get, we'll get more into this, that some of the things that Constance does uh, uh, kind of hinder the empire, but I think at the same time, had he not done these things, it would have... Um, it would have been much more difficult for the Byzantines to survive in the coming centuries, as we'll as we'll talk about here in a second. So one way that Constance manages to survive all this is by a, a both military and administrative reform. And I'm going to refer to these as the thematic reforms. Now this doesn't mean theme as in as in like a a Hawaiian-themed party, talking about themes as in themata, uh, which is the Greek term for this. And so a theme is an administrative and military region, which uh, Constans split up most of the Byzantine Empire into. And it was governed by a guy called Estrategos, um, which is a similar position to an exarch. Estrategos holds both civil and military authority in a region, however... In one of the themes, it was, uh, I believe this is uh, pronounced opsition. In the opsition theme, that was ruled by a count. It was not ruled by a strategos. And there were five themes which were uh, which are created here. You have the opsit, the opsition, the Armaniac, the Anatolic, the Thracian, and the Caribis, the Caribbean. Not to be confused with the Caribbean. And so what this was designed to do was it took Byzantine field armies and settled them into regions. So instead of having an army that would go wherever it is needed, you take that army, you settle it down in an area, you put the guys down, you give them uh, land to live on, uh, they, they are living permanently in that area, and they are responsible for defending that particular area. Looks like I'm already going to have to relight this. I was so hopeful that I wouldn't have to relight this for a little while. I apologize here for the sound of the lighter. And another, uh, now another reason that this was done 
was because the empire is also very, 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 very strapped for cash at this point in time, right? They've lost, they've lost ha- at least half of the empire, and not just half the empire, but the the half of the empire that produced majority of the money, right? And so another thing that happens with the thematic reforms is that the payment of the army also changes. It goes from soldiers being paid in cash to soldiers being paid in kind, whether that's grants of land, I've heard some people talk about, as well as uh, uh, providing them with weapons, armor, food. Uh, They go from being paid in cash to being paid in kind. And this is a way to alleviate portions of the imperial budget, and does a decent job of it. the system, the system. Although, like I said, Treadgold seems to be uh, fairly uh, or somewhat critical of it. I think it was, even though perhaps it does uh, lead to some unintended, unintended consequences, it's a bit of a necessary evil at this point in time because you really need to hold on to what you've got left. And this allows for the protection of these regions to be more localized, and for protecting these areas to be more important to the soldiers because, after all, they're living in these areas. So it's more important for them to protect it because it's their own town, their own home, their own families that need to be protected. Not necessarily, you know, you have, you have some soldiers from the Balkans who are, all fu- who are off fighting in Syria. Well, and not to question the commitment of those soldiers, but there's an added sense of urgency when you're going to, be- you're going to fight against the enemy. And if you lose... Right, a soldier in the Balkans, his his family is is hundreds, if not you know a thousand miles away. Uh, with the way these themes are set up, if you're a soldier defending the Anatolic theme, uh, if you lose, that means in in all likelihood your town is going to be at risk, and all the people who you know there and who you care about there, and not to mention as well also any sort of revenue that you might be getting from any land you control, you own there, or have been granted there, is also going to be at risk. So there's an added sense of urgency for those who are defending these areas. Now, these themes were mostly in Anatolia because at this point in time, outside of the exarchates of Italy and Africa, which is North Africa, the area uh, around Carthage, uh, most of the Byzantine Empire is in Anatolia. Right, they still control. There's still the uh, the Thracian region and the area around Constantinople, but like I said, much of Greece is gone at this point. Uh, it will they, the the Byzantines will push back in there. Um, and they do they do control you know a number of islands in the Aegean, uh, Crete, Rhodes, and after a while here they'll they'll get Cyprus back as well. And the good part about this is that Anatolia is actually very. Uh, uh, easily defensible because it's so mountainous. And so the rugged terrain makes it difficult for armies to move through it and narrow passways allow for smaller groups of soldiers to defend against larger groups of enemies and it makes enemy movement predictable because you know, you're not going to go over the steep mountain range. There's only you know this these three mountain passes that they can possibly go through and maybe you know in the wintertime one of those is uh, you know too difficult to traverse. Uh, so it's... Uh, Easily defensible, and not just that as well, but it was fairly empty. The Anatolia was not heavily populated at this point in time, and so settling soldiers down in these areas was not. Uh, you, you weren't, you know, moving people. You didn't have to seize a bunch of land from people who were already living there, uh, which would have created a whole other uh, series of issues. So, like I said, it, it works out fairly well. 
And just to go back to the idea of contraction here, right, this is done to stay the advance of the Arabs. There's no thought about expansion at this point in time. It's just, let's let's hold on to what we've got. We might have to give up a little bit of land here and there, but for the most part, we're just holding on to a majority of what we have. Now, as I mentioned earlier, another issue that Constantius II is facing here is what I would call a drifting Africa and Italy. So what I mean by that, again, is the exarchs of Africa and Italy are acting uh, so uh, very independently uh, to the point where um, they're, almost, they're almost acting like they're not part of the Byzantine Empire. And so one project that Constans takes on is he takes an army and goes to Italy not, uh, not that there's a rebellion going on or anything or that there's a war, but he's sort of kind of reasserting uh, right, Byzantine authority in that area. He goes to visit the Pope. He goes down to Sicily, which is getting pretty, uh, starting to act pretty independently, and he you know, tries to rein things in there, and he is doing a decent job of it until, unfortunately for Constans II, he is assassinated by the uh, Opsian uh, Count, the Count of the theme of Opsia, while he was in Sicily. Now, the Count of uh, Opsia does proclaim himself emperor, but he was taken out quickly by Constans' uh, young son, Constantine. That'll be Constantine the Fourth here. Now, uh, the second part here of the episode, and let me just check how we're doing on time here. All right, we're looking good. The The second part of this uh, uh, lecture here and this time period is going to have to do with a lot of usurpers and regime changes in a very short amount of time. Uh, not initially here, Const- uh, Constantine IV is going to have a decently, uh, a decently long reign. But after that, you're gonna you're gonna see it's a, it's a complete dumpster fire. So first up, we have like I said, Constantine IV, who was very I think he he, he, he I want to say he was fairly young when he when he comes to the throne. Um, and though things are stable for him at the start, they don't last that way, because very soon after Constantine IV ascends to the throne. The Slavs are going to besiege Thessalonica, and the Arabs are going to move on Constantinople. Now, the fledgling uh, Arab navy defeats the veteran Byzantine navy uh, early on in his reign, and this is kind of a a scary thing because the Arabs have just put together a fleet here. Um, The Byzantines have, have had a very competent navy for a long period of time, and I think the thought going into the first battle was, you know, these guys, you know, all these greenhorns over here, we're going to very easily uh, overtake them. But you also have to keep in mind that the Arab, who are the Arabs, you know, getting ship, uh, shipbuilding ideas from and who's probably leading a lot of these fleets is probably a lot of, you know, people who are of more of a Byzantine ancestry than an Arab ancestry. Or at least there is an element of that. Now, uh, uh, soon after that, that that Arab navy that I just spoke about is going to sail up to Constantinople 
and uh, basically blockade it and besiege it from sea. And it's at this point in time that the Byzantines bring out a new and still somewhat uh, secretive unknown weapon. And that, of course, we're talking about Greek fire. I say kind of secretive because people still don't know exactly what Greek fire was. The recipe to put it together was secret. It does seem to be some sort of oil-like substance because it it floats on top of water. Uh, Like, for example, I remember when I was a kid watching uh, uh, World War II movies with my dad and that you you would watch movies about, like, uh, the American Navy in the Pacific and you would see, like, ships... Uh, burning and sinking, and then you would see, uh, I would, I remember seeing fire floating on the water, and I was like, oh my gosh, what, fire on top of water? That's crazy. I, and it was explained to me that that was oil burning, and because oil floats on top of water, the fire can then float on top of the water in the oil. Um, so that that's why I say that, like I said, because Byzantine fire, or Greek fire, uh, could float on water which was a big advantage here. And sometimes it does seem like it was also mixed with sawdust, and then they would basically get uh, a a big uh, blower um, and and project it out of the ships like a flamethrower. And so the Greek fire was used to burn the Arab navy. This was, like I said, this was a new weapon, uh, very... uh, The the Arabs certainly would have been shocked by this, seeing fire floating on top of water. Uh, And it burns a a large amount of the Arab navy to the point where uh, they they call off the attack on Constantinople. And actually, as the Arab navy is is retreating, uh, uh, Treadgold says as well, uh, the remaining fleet gets caught in a fairly big storm. So even the, the ships that survived the battle, many of them don't make it back home. And then after this threat was neutralized... Uh, Constantine turns his attention to the Slavs and defeats them outside of Thessalonica. Now, as if the Byzantines would get time to breathe, <laughs> which is a funny joke, right? When when you're the, it's like, oh, we've dispatched two enemies. Great, maybe now we can like sit down, maybe take a nap, have a drink. No, 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 because just at this point in time, around 680 to 681, uh, this group called the Khazars pushed the Bulgars west out of the Eurasian steppe, and the Bulgars come down across the Danube. Now, the Bulgars subjugate the Slavs in uh, what would we, we would call today Thrace, uh, Thrace, or part of Thrace, and establish their own little state there. Kind of, kind of get an early little kingdom going on there. And Constantine attempted to eliminate them, but he had to leave his army in the middle of that campaign, apparently to get treatment for his gout. Uh, not sure why a doctor couldn't come to him to treat his gout, but there you go. And after Constantine left the army, it crumbled. The Bulgars uh, defeated them and were able to manage to maintain a state there. Uh, Constantine had to sign a treaty with them and recognize them. And uh, the Bulgar state would remain off and on there for a long time. And this is where we get uh, the name for our modern country of Bulgaria. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the Bulgars, when they initially come in, are a Central Asian uh, Turkic people, but today... If you go to Bulgaria, most people there are ethnic Slavs, because right the the, ter- the name Bulgar or even Bulgarian just comes from the ruling class of people which initially came in who would have been uh, Central Asian uh, Turkic people. 
But today, again, in Bulgaria, Bulgarians are ethnic Slavs. Their language is Slavic. Uh, they're they're Eastern Orthodox. Um, so that's not to say that you know. I, I understand that if you <laughs> if you were to say that uh, Bulgarians are, are Turkic, you would you would certainly offend many Bulgarians, and I and I don't want to do that. I I might have mentioned this on the on the show bef- before, but I remember uh, my my little sister uh, uh, played tennis in high school, and uh, there was like an exchange student on one of the uh, opposing teams, and she was from Bulgaria, I want to say, or she might have been Serbian. Um, I want to. I want to say she was Bulgarian because I remember remarking. I don't think I've ever met a Bulgarian before, um, and she was very nice. Spoke very good English. Uh, spoke some French. My dad and I kind of uh, practiced a little French with her. Nice, nice girl. Um, um, certainly, certainly like the Bulgarian people. So I don't mean to offend anybody. I'm just kind of giving you the the facts of history as as I as I come across them. Now, unfortunately for Constantine, he dies of dysentery, which just sounds like a terrible way to go, uh, in 685. This is where things get interesting. So, Constantine IV is followed by his son, Justinian II, who was only 16 years old when he uh, rose to the throne. Now, Justinian II wanted to live up to his namesake, Justinian I, by Reconquest or reconquering vast swaths of the Byzantine Empire. Now, during a time of truce with the Arabs, because there's always this on again, off again fighting between the Byzantines and the Arabs, and when Justinian II comes to the throne, there's a period of peace. And so he takes advantage of that time to push back against the Slavs in Greece, and in doing so, he gathers up about 30,000 Slavs to try to create his, uh, a new army for himself, an army entirely made of these, of these Slavs, which he is now essentially subjugated. And during a time uh, when there is a period of civil war within the Arab uh, Caliphate, uh, Justinian tries to attack them with this new army, and the Arab Caliphate basically buys them off. They give them control over, like, Armenia and, I think, Lazica and and uh, some tribute in order to to uh, prevent the Byzantine attacks so they can sort out the civil war. I believe this is the time when you get uh, the infighting among the Caliphate over uh, the descendants of Ali versus uh, basically everyone else. I misspoke in, in our episode on Islam. Terribly sorry to get this wrong. Uh, I said that Muhammad didn't have any children. Um, this is not the case because Ali, I think I said he was the nephew. I believe he's actually the son-in-law of Muhammad. I could be wrong. You know what? Let's just let's just settle this right now. We can pull up ye old ghoul. Uh, who was Ali to Muhammad? Oh, oh, so uh, both cousin and son-in-law. Okay, so uh, so both. So I, te- I, I sort of wasn't wrong. Um, but anyway, so, so, so this is the point in time in Islamic history where you get a split uh, between what we would today call the Sunnis and the Shias. And the Shias are the people who believe that uh, the leader of the caliphate should be a, uh, from the family line of Muhammad, who, w- who would have been Ali, and then the Sunnis who believed that it didn't necessarily matter if the, cal- if the caliph was a descendant of, or, or of somehow in the family of Muhammad. I'm going to have to light this again here. 
Now, in terms of uh, a difference in, in like theology between uh, Sunnis and Shias, I'm not really sure. I don't really know of of anything different apart from uh, the the whole part about Ali and and Muhammad's uh, family there. I don't know if they're if they believe a whole lot else that's significantly different. I am trying to get uh, an Islamic scholar to come on the show, uh, and that that would certainly be something I would want to talk to him about. Uh, hope, hopefully, I can get this guy on the show. But then, also at this time. Uh, Justinian II decides to change up the way that Byzantine money is printed, and basically the way this worked out is that he uh, uh, puts an, uh, a portrait of Christ on Byzantine uh, gold coins, which are called nomismata. And so uh, after this, when the caliph starts sending uh, the Byzantines his tribute of gold, uh, his coins did not have uh, Christ printed on the coin, which I mean, which like kind of makes sense. Like they they're not Christian. I don't know why you would expect this, but Justinian apparently found this very offensive, and decided to not accept the Arab coins uh, because there was no imprint of Christ on them, and decided to declare war on the Arabs because of it. Uh, this war was fairly short, and Justinian ended up getting egg on his face because his hastily thrown together army of Slavs crumbled very quickly against the Arabs, and all the ter- territory which he had previously gained from the old peace treaty was now lost to the Arabs again, again, uh, uh, basically dominion over uh, Armenia and Lazica uh, was lost, and the Arabs start ra- uh, sending significant raids into Anatolia. Now, such a debacle brought a lot of unpopularity to Justinian, understandably so. This is a big, this is a big boo-boo. And so, uh, he becomes so unpopular that a general named Leonidas uh, leads a coup against Justinian, and has, uh, I think, the tip of his nose cut off, and he's exiled to Crimea. Because remember, the Byzantines do control a little bit of the Crimean Peninsula uh, in the city uh, uh, Kaffa. Uh, and that remains a Byzantine outpost for, for a fairly long time. Now, soon after Leonidas uh, takes the throne, the Arabs take over Byzantine North Africa, including the city of Carthage. And so Leonidas sends an army to try to retake Byzantine Africa. Now, the army does retake Carthage for a short period of time, but the Arabs get it back fairly quickly. And they allow that uh, Byzantine army to then return home. Well, on the journey home, funny thing happens here because we can't have more than five minutes of stability... Uh, the army, on their way home, they stop in Crete for a resupply, and they get the idea in their head that, well, let's just rebel. And so they promote their the general of that army, or, well, I guess maybe it would really be the admiral of the navy. Uh, either way, they promote their leader uh, as the new emperor, and he takes the name Tiberius. And they sail back to Constantinople and knock Leonidas off the throne and send him to live in a monastery, and now Tiberius is the new emperor. Follow here so far? First we had Justinian, then Leonidas uh, sent him to exile in Crimea, then Leonidas is uh, kicked off the throne and sent to live in a monastery by Tiberius. Well, Tiberius is also going to have something coming to him as well, because while this is all happening, 
Justinian II escaped imprisonment in Crimea and managed to get himself married to the Khaz- to the daughter of the Khazar Khan. Uh, but then things start to get a little uh, dicey for him in the Khazar Khanate as well, and so then he flees to the Bulgar Khanate, where he wins the favor of the Bulgar Khan. And the, uh, the Khan of the Bulgars, and Khan is just a, a kind of a Central Asian uh, term for like leader, great leader, right? Genghis Khan is the same thing. Um, Genghis Khan, I believe, means uh, universal uh, ruler or something. So Khan is just, it's kind of like another word for king. Uh, usually indicates uh, more power, more of a more autocratic than absolutist, uh, but uh, not to get too much into the, into the political philosophy about it. Uh, but the Bulgar Khan likes Justinian so much that he gives him an army of Bulgars, which Justinian II then uses to march on Constantinople. And in 705, Justinian II returns to Constantinople and resumes his place on the throne. He has both Leonidas and Tiberius executed, and a lot of their um, and a lot of like their their buddies as well. He, he kind of goes on a killing spree here, which which earns him some unpopularity, but he does manage to kind of stabilize things there afterwards for a little while. Uh, now, in, uh, after uh, 7-11, a year in which uh, Justinian II makes amends with the Pope, because previously there had been a church council, the name of which is not necessarily important, where uh, all of the bishops at the church council were Eastern bishops, none of them were Western bishops, so a lot of the bishops in the West, including the Pope, did not want to recognize the, the council, and so uh, it was, I think it was basically made null and void, and Justinian uh, kind of made a formal apology to the Pope, and the Pope uh, the Pope received it well, you know, they, they kind of made amends. Uh, but around this time, also, there is a rebellion going on in Crimea from a certain uh, general named Philippicus, or, sorry, Philippicus. Uh, and so Justinian sends a navy up to Crimea to put down the rebellion, but instead of putting down the rebellion, the navy joins up with Philippicus, and he sails down to Constantinople and has Justinian II beheaded. So, unfortunate ending for just he's a very he's a very uh, uh, if if nothing else the guy has a has a real uh, determined attitude you know even though he was sent to exile he didn't he didn't just wither away there he escaped he gets he gets himself into one royal court that doesn't work out he gets himself into another royal court uses that to his advantage gets himself back to to the imperial throne upon which he used to sit. All that just for him to be beheaded by by some uh, general for, from some kind of uh, 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 backwater province in, in the empire. And if you thought it stopped there, I mean, when I was writing this lecture, I was like, sure, oh, surely it's got to stop here. And it's like, nope, nope, it doesn't. So Philippicus uh, is very incompetent, incompetent in terms of fighting the empire's enemies at this point, namely uh, the... The Arabs, obviously, and the Slavs. And he was later seized by the Count of Opsian, and he was blinded by him. And now one would assume that the Count of Opsian would become emperor, but instead a guy uh, who took the name Anastasius II, his, his name before that not really important, uh, but Anastasius II captures the Count and has him blinded, 
And so then Anastasius II becomes emperor. Now, around 715, Anastasius gets word that there's going to be a big Byzant- uh, sorry, a big Arab invasion and attack on Constantinople by both land and sea. And so Anastasius starts preparing defenses, he starts improving the seawalls at Constantinople, and one of the things that he does is he sends a navy out to try to stall the Arab navy um, so they don't get attacked by both land and sea, maybe they can take out the Arab navy, or maybe they can slow them down. And the army stops in Rhodes, and while the while that na- or sorry, navy, uh, they make a stop in Rhodes to like resupply, and while they're there, they decide, uh, we should rebel too. And a rebellion broke out there, and they just picked a guy... They also named him, I believe he was also named Tiberius, and they kind of made him the figurehead of their rebellion. And while Anastasius was marching an army towards Nicaea, the rebels kind of came in the back door behind him to Constantinople, and Anastasius admitted defeat, defeat there and accepted life in a monastery. Presumably, uh, uh, you know, he didn't want to be blinded or castrated uh, and then sent to a monastery. He was probably like, well, I'd like to maintain my vision, and I'd like to make sure that my... Um, genitals stay intact, so I'll just admit defeat here, which he did. And interestingly enough, (laughs) Treadgold says that uh, the person who the, uh, who that Navy chose as, uh, 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 as their emperor was like a tax collector down in Rhodes, and they basically made him a figurehead. Uh, he didn't even want to be emperor. He was like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm, I don't really want to be here. I believe, I, I think his name might have been Tiberius. It's not really important because he's only, he's on the throne for about a year before he basically gives up. And then this guy, Leo, Leo the Syrian, comes in and he becomes uh, the next emperor and uh, the, that tax collector guy, but he's like, I didn't even want this. Like, here, you can have it. Um, and who can blame him because all these guys are getting, like, wiped out. They're getting beheaded and blinded and sent to, uh, banished to, Crimea and sent to live in monasteries, and this guy's probably like, I don't want any of this. Um, but this is where I think we need to stop because there. I mean, we've we've gone through uh, what is this now? F- four uh, or five uh, regime changes in a matter of uh, a couple of years, basically, not really, not even a decade. Um, but after this, things will things will start to stabilize a little bit. So I do hope you have enjoyed this rather rocky <laughs> period of Byzantine history. Like I said, after the rise of the Arabs, it is a long, drawn-out, sad story. There will be some positive. There will be some some good things in here. Don't worry. It's not all going to be negative. But a lot of it's going to be negative. So like I said, again, thank you for watching. If you made it this far in the video, please make sure to give it a like. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. And hit the notification bell so you never miss another episode. Please do help us uh, grow the channel by by sharing, uh, whether you're listening on the podcast pla- on the podcast platforms or if you're listening on YouTube, please make sure to you know share, share it with your friends, your classmates, professors, whoever, family, um, and helps grow the show. We're close to 100 subscribers. I'm really excited about that. Thank you guys so much for, for helping to grow the show. Um, we are, if we haven't reached 2,000 views on YouTube yet, we're really close. Um, I haven't checked the podcast numbers because as I've changed the uh, the file format on the podcast, the numbers have changed a little bit, so hopefully we can get those. We're getting up to like close to 50 downloads per episode, and it dropped down when I changed it to, to the new file format. Hopefully we can get that back up fairly quickly. I'll try to adjust and add more podcast platforms to ship it out to, so hopefully we can reach new people. But yeah, I, I, do, I do appreciate uh, all the support that you guys have given us here. So... 
With that being said, that's all I have for you today, and I'll see y'all next time.